Hey everyone, welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast. This is episode number 101. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back 50 years and bring you all the hockey news that was taking place at that time in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of any era. In this episode, we're looking at the week of September 27th to October 3rd, 1971. So in this week back in 1971, the month of September was drawing to a close as NHL training camps also neared their completion and many teams' lineups were starting to take shape. Uh, We'll take a trip around the camps and let you know just what was going on at this point as October was starting to get going. The week began with off-ice news out of Toronto. Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe, the two head guys of the Maple Leafs organization, in a Monday court appearance, elected trial by county court judge alone for their theft and fraud charges, which had been laid, as you remember, a couple months ago by the Toronto police. This means that there would not be any jury in these trials. Now, to explain just how this system worked, because I learned this quite a bit later when I joined the police police force, uh, when a person is charged with the type of crimes that these men are accused of, the Crown has a choice of whether to proceed by way of indictment, which is the more serious procedure with a substantially higher penalty, or by summary conviction, which is a minor penalty ranging from smaller fines to probation and in rare occurrences uh, a short term of incarceration. For these offenses, when the Crown elects to proceed by way of indictment, the accused person is then given the choice, in the case of these particular crimes, to decide whether to be tried by a judge and a jury or by a judge alone. And these trials are held in what was at that time now known as county court. Uh, These days it's known as superior court. That's the next level up from provincial court, which normally hear uh, criminal matters that are tried by way of summary conviction and traffic offenses, stuff like that. The conventional wisdom at the time, and even true mostly today, is that an accused will select a jury trial if they believe they have a better chance of convincing lay people who aren't lawyers, namely a judge, of their innocence. Often when the evidence in law would suggest that the accused is guilty, the counsel will then try and play on the emotions of the lay people on the jury to acquit the accused. And when the accused believes that there are facts in the case that law would lead to the acquittal, in other words, something in law that says they didn't actually uh, complete an act that would make them guilty of a crime, then their lawyer would have them select trial by judge alone, knowing that the judge's legal expertise would lead to a decision to acquit on a point of law. In this case, the argument that would be put forth by their lawyers would center on that type of legal point. However, as with these two, as we've seen throughout the years, nothing goes to according to plan or conventional wisdom. Stay tuned, there's news coming not far down the road. And another legal matter involving hockey people was in the news that day as well. Judge Frank Dunlap of Renfrew County Court, one of those county court judges I was just talking about, he had been charged back in June with willfully obstructing two police officers, and he was remanded in Hull, Quebec Court to November 16th, on his own recognizance, Judge Dunlap of 707 Island Park Drive in Renfrew did not appear in court, but was represented by his lawyer. Now, Judge Dunlap was charged in June by the low detachment of the Quebec Provincial Police following an incident while police were trying to arrest Larry Regan, general manager of the LA Kings of the National Hockey League, on a charge of dangerous driving after Regan led the whole police in a high-speed chase. He finally pulled over. They finally arrested him. Somehow Dunlap tried to stop the arrest. He was pinched, and the whole thing now goes to court. Regan's hearing, by the way, has been set for October 29th, and we'll see what happens at that trial. In fact, I know what happens. I'm not going to spoil it. We will have a full report on that one. 
given the relative strength of the Boston Bruins of the NHL, you got to think that their AHL team, the new team in the AHL slated to begin this fall, the Braves, would have a pretty strong team. Well, we found out just how strong this Braves team is going to be. Or maybe this is a sign of how badly off the California Golden Seals are. As they played an exhibition game against the Seals and hold them to a 1-1 tie right at the California training facility in Oshawa, Ontario. The star of the game was a young netminder named Daniel Bouchard who played his final season of junior hockey with the London Knights and he has been absolutely outstanding through the Boston training camp. Uh, This one hits me pretty hard because this guy's a good friend of one of my dear friends, Ed Chadwick, and that's Jimmy Morrison, who played for the Leafs, a few other NHL teams. The Pittsburgh Penguins told Jimmy this week that his services would no longer be required by the organization at any level and that he would be fully released. Jim left the Penguins' Brantford training site, headed back to Toronto to discuss his future with his wife. Red Kelly had this to say about Jim. He said that Jim came to camp with a chance of making the team, but the young players that the Penguins have drafted and picked up over the last couple years look so good that according to Red, we just didn't need him. Red ruled out sending Jimmy to Hershey in the AHL because he wants to stock that team with the Penguins' younger players who aren't quite ready for prime time. Jimmy Morrison, end of the line now. Well, we'll have to see if he can catch on with another team, probably at the AHL level. We talked to you uh, in a previous episode about how Dennis Hextall, the center picked up by the North Stars in an off-season deal from the California Seals, how he'd been disappointing uh, early in camp and he'd been demoted to Minnesota's B group made up mainly of players destined to play for the American Hockey League Cleveland Barons, a Stars farm team. Red Blair had absolutely no intention of having Hextall play in the minors, but he was just trying to light a fire under the Veterans Center, and apparently it worked. Hex played a couple of the Stars' exhibition games this week, and a game against the Canucks. He engaged in a pair of spirited fistfights that showed he is bent on staying with the big club. Dan Stoneking of the Minneapolis Star wrote that Hextall, quote, beat up Pat Quinn twice in their matches, but the Vancouver Papers, of course, they, they reported a slightly different version of the facts that uh, Hextall acquitted himself quite well against the bigger, stronger Quinn. Who actually won the bouts was completely irrelevant. Everyone knows that in an exhibition game. What counted for Minnesota was that Hextall was getting back to his usual usual truculent self. Yes, the word truculent was used years before Brian Burke was on the scene. A relatively minor trade was arranged between the Maple Leafs and the Canucks this week. Toronto sent a young center by the name of Doug Brindley to Vancouver and changed in exchange for a former Toronto prospect by the name of Andre Heinz. There was little more to the story that met the eye at first glance, and Jim Gregory of the Leafs explained the thinking, at least his thinking, that he was willing to make public behind the deal. Uh, Jim said that uh, Brindley would have had a hard time in Toronto because he's a center and they already have Almond, Keon, Harrison, and Settler. Doug wasn't going to fit in anywhere there. He wasn't even going to get a chance. Gregory said, Doug got a few games with us last year and we feel there's not much chance for him here. He's got a much better chance playing in the NHL with Vancouver. But Vancouver Province hockey writer Tom Watt revealed what actually was taking place. Watt says the deal could best be described as a something-for-nothing transition, with the something being what the Canucks got and Doug Brindley and the nothing being Andre Hines going to Toronto, where he has no chance of playing. Here's what's really going on. Uh, Some people think that Hines was a better player, but he's a couple years older and uh, he had 44 goals with the Phoenix Roadrunners last season in the Western Hockey League. But what happened was Andre Hines fell in love with the city of Phoenix, and he really wanted to play there. Phoenix has no ties to the Vancouver Canucks, who own his rights, and they had no intention of sending him to Phoenix and getting nothing in return. Well, it had been apparent during training camp that 
Hines just wasn't going to be any use because of his attitude. He wanted to go to Phoenix. So here's what happened. When Phoenix purchased the Victoria Western Hockey League franchise from from Toronto Maple Leafs as part of the agreement, this was a few years ago, that's how Phoenix got their Western Hockey League franchise, Toronto agreed they would supply to Phoenix the nucleus of the team just as they had in Victoria. The Roadrunners have really been unhappy with the personnel that the Maple Leafs have given them over the couple of years they've had the franchise. In fact, Phoenix actually took legal action against the Maple Leafs to force them to send them better better hockey players. The last straw, as far as the Roadrunners' management was concerned, came when the Canucks moved into the NHL in 1970, and they took uh, Hines in the expansion draft from the Maple Leafs. The Canucks sort of alleviated the situation a little bit by just leaving Hines in Phoenix for the year. He grew to to love the city more, Andre did. And so following last season when he scored over 40 goals in the Western Hockey League, Vancouver thought he might be the solution to their lack of depth on the left wing. When it became obvious he's just not quite an NHL player, that's when the Canucks offered to make the deal. The Roadrunners obviously told Toronto if they could supply Hines, the Phoenix club would consider that the Maple Leafs had fulfilled their obligations for this season. The Canucks were agreeable, but stated they want one of two players from the organization in Toronto, and they would settle for nothing less, and one of the players was Doug Brindley. So Doug Brindley becomes a Canuck, Andre Hines goes to where he wants to go in uh, Phoenix, and everybody is happy. And a few years later, Doug Brindley would join the OPP. He would be posted to a Niagara area detachment, and he would come out, and he would be playing hockey with many of the Niagara regional police officers, and I was one of them, and Doug and I got to know each other a little bit during those years when we played hockey together. Many Wednesday morning two-hour workouts, a lot of fun. He was a good good hockey player at that level we were playing at with a bunch of police officers. A lot of former pros actually ended up uh, with police. One of the more uh, famous ones that I knew of that left the hot professional hockey and joined the police was goalie Paul Harrison, who had time with the Leafs and the North Stars, and he ended up with the Timmins police. A little bit of World Hockey Association news for you from the great... uh, uh, fine writer Tim Moriarty of the of Newsday, and he writes that Neil Shane of Woodmere is the head of a group of Long Islanders who were awarded a franchise in the World Hockey Association. He identified two of his most prominent backers as Mark Hart of Lake Success and Nathan Kalakau of Atlantic Beach. Hart is chairman of the board of the American Plan Corporation, a major holding company with headquarters in Westbury. Calico is a wealthy Long Island home builder and he's chairman of the Nassau County Bridge Authority. Shane and his associates were awarded a franchise in uh, this uh, week's, uh, uh, I guess you call it press conference, uh, media advisement, whatever you want to call it. The WHA said that they're going to let those guys have the New York franchise. WHA, as you know, plans to start operating as hockey's second major league in October of 1972 in direct competition with the National Hockey League for players and fans. Shane said he officially notified James Wells, chairman of the Commerce and Interior for Nassau County, that his yet unnamed team was requesting 39 home dates in the new Coliseum for the 1972-73 season. Shane said copies of the letter were sent to County Executive Casso and William Bill Shea, the sports consultant for the county, who is attempting to acquire an NHL franchise for that same Coliseum. Bill Shea, as you know, is the man who brought the New York Mets to New York in the uh, early 60s expansion of baseball's National League. Neil Shane told Tim Moriarty that the teams joining the World Hockey Association must offer proof of $2 million in working capital before the league will let them in. He said his group has no trouble 
meeting that figure. Although his team is only four days old, Shane said offered had already offers had already been received for the team to play its home games in a proposed new sports complex in get this Brooklyn and another prospective new rink in College Point, which is in Queens. Shea said, my answer to those people is that we are primarily interested in bringing Major League Hockey to Long Island. We'll play elsewhere only if we are forced. And another major U.S. city also unveiled its World Hockey Association team this week. Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune lets us know that Chicago has a team and has an owner. Bob wrote that the mystery was over concerning the owner of Chicago's second pro hockey club. Eugene J. Beckard, Becker, a 43-year-old attorney who practices in Chicago, unveiled himself to the Tribune as the head of an undisclosed number of prominent people, boy, that's a nebulous term, who will direct the Chicago franchise in the World Hockey Association. The WHA, which has high hopes of becoming Skate Dumb's American Football League, will, of course, as we mentioned, conduct its, commence its rivalry with the NHL next year. All uh, Becker says he needs is players, money, and arenas to satisfy uh, 12 franchises in the league. Uh, the franchises were tentatively awarded last week. A lot of people writing they awarded 12 franchises. No, what they did is they gave options on putting up the money a little later on in about 12 cities. But there, you're going to see there's going to be some come and go. Some uh, uh, cities we completely forgot about or never realized were even in there ended up getting some of these franchises. Becker says that his group has an adequate supply of players existing in American colleges and in the minor leagues and that they have adequate funds that they will be building their own major league arena in an as yet unnamed location within the city of Chicago. Stay tuned on that one. And for lots more WHA news, have a look at our uh, Patreon subscriptions. We have everything WHA in a very special Patreon episode coming up this week. And uh, we'll get into great detail on what Gary Davidson and Dennis Murphy said about the league, how it's going to work, and our Patreon subscribers will get the full story. That's patreon.com slash Hockey 50 Years to Subscribe. The California Golden Seals continued to whine to anyone who'd listen about how they were jobbed by the Chicago Blackhawks in the trade that sent goalie Gary Smith to the Hawks for uh, netminder Jerry Desjardins, Jerry Pinder, and Kerry Bond. Seals owner Charles O'Finley suggested that the Blackhawks knew all along that Desjardins was not healing property properly from the badly broken arm he suffered during a game last March. The Hawks say they had no idea of the goaler's condition. Clarence Campbell, president of the NHL, was asked by the Seals to void the deal immediately. Campbell, on the other hand, agreed to conduct an investigation, and he had a conversation with the aforementioned Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune. Campbell's thoughts were basically that had the Seals submitted Jerry Desjardins to a physical exam just before they obtained him from the Blackhawks on September 9th, they never would have made the trade. That's how he feels now. But they didn't do that. Why? Lord only knows. When you're picking up a guy who had a bad, bad injury that the whole world knew about last March, and you're counting on him to play 60 or 70 games for you this year, you want to make sure this guy is damn healthy. They didn't do that. And now Campbell has a naughty problem. See, the, the Seals never called for an up-to-date expansion of the left forearm, which Desjardins fractured. they uh, Then when they got him, they claimed Desjardins was unfit to play, which he was. But they relied on an assessment by a doctor from the Hawks back in June that said Jerry's arm was recovering quite well, only a few months after the injury. By the time they got to September, the healing process had somehow gone awry. 
Campbell said that there was no question Desjardins was in no shape to play hockey at this point in time. He said that, in fact, if the arm is not operated on soon, Jerry's career could be endangered. So now what Campbell has to do is figure out whether the Hawks knew this, they claim they didn't, and whether the Seals were at fault for not doing their due diligence. Caveat emptor is probably the uh, phrase we're looking for here. Let the buyer beware. That's how it usually works, or at least up to this point in history, that's how trades usually worked. We don't know what's going to happen in this one. Hopefully, somebody can come up with a solution that will work this out. One of the things Campbell has decided to do to assist him in in adjudicating this uh, hornet's nest, what it could turn out to be, is he has assigned Desjardins to a physical examination uh, in Toronto this the, by the end of this week that we were talking about, where a bone specialist will look at Jerry and provide an impartial report. Uh, this guy is approved by the NHL and several NHL teams, and then they'll figure out whether they'll negate the trade, renegotiate the trade, let it stand, and the SEALs need all the help they can get. Can you imagine them going into the upcoming season with the only professional goalkeeper, the only guy who has any pro experience is a fellow by the name of Gary Kurt, who was the... Uh, all-star goalie in the American Hockey League last year with exactly zero NHL games under his belt. By the way, uh, talking about trades, the Flyers general manager Keith Allen was busy this week. He was trying to make some sort of significant deal to boost his offense a little bit, but he wasn't having much luck. He called the two general managers who have been uh, the most active in making uh, swaps over the past uh, year or so. Uh, past few months for sure and that's Ned Harkness in Detroit and the rookie general manager of the Seals Gary Young and maybe Keith was thinking that he had a soft touch there in Gary Young uh, he talked to uh, Young in California who said as of then they were not trading Carl Vadney the only piece of property that Seals really had that was worth uh, the Flyers acquiring and uh uh, Keith Allen also said that Ned Harkness said they were not planning any changes to their team right at this point in time either. So no deals for the Flyers coming up right now. Well, week three of the National Football League is in the books. And now it's time to review the tapes and get ready for week four with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Football League. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings has given new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any week four game to receive $150 in free bets right on the spot instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any NFL game. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. There's a minimum of $5 deposit and a $1 wager required. One free uh, bet per customer and restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for all the details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. And while we're at it, please don't forget our other sponsors that make this uh, show possible. 
Uh, Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, makes it possible for us to do the research to acquire the information that we present here. And the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn is uh, uh, producing some of the best craft beers in southern Ontario, and they help us out a great deal as well. The Toronto Maple Leafs have three college players at training camp, and John, John Grisdale, Murray Heatley, and Brian St. John were doing their best to change the image that college players bring to the National Hockey League. While none of the three were projected to make the team as regulars right out of camp, their fine play in September has injected them into the list of top prospects for the Leafs and all were regarded at this point as likely mid-season call-ups in the event of injuries to regulars. Those three uh, of the be- of the three, Grisdale was about the best, but Brian St. John showed a bit of a scoring knack as well. And uh, Heatley, also a good college player, any of the three would not look out of place in an NHL lineup. Serge Savard of the Montreal Canadiens is slowly rounding into shape, uh, rehabbing uh, from that second broken leg he suffered last spring. Serge said that the leg still feels a little stiff, but there isn't any pain, which is a good thing. Now, Serge says, it's just a case of building up the muscle. An interesting little story here from Whitby, Ontario. Don't forget, we are in 19. 19- 71. A long way from pro line, a long way from online sports betting. And in this story, students at a Roman Catholic high school in Whitby are selling lottery tickets on NHL games to provide the school with money to meet operating costs. Sister Mildred Moyle, principal of Dennis O'Connor High School, said in an interview with Canadian Press that an additional $26,700 was needed just to meet this year's operating costs. These kids aren't, aren't selling tickets to raise money for a trip to Ottawa or a trip to Quebec City. They're trying to keep the school open. Uh, Sister um, Moyle said that the school has operated at a deficit every year since it opened, but the increased operating costs this year can't be met simply by the church collection. She said that she expects the lottery, which has been authorized by the town of Whitby, will raise about $20,000. 1971. I wonder if the NHL have anything to say about that. Remember Charlie Hodge, a fine goalkeeper the Canucks picked up for their first year of expansion in the draft from the California Golden Seals? Well, Charlie hasn't been on the ice at the Canucks, Canucks training camp because of a contract dispute. Charlie, you see, wants a no-cut contract. Bud Poyle says any contract like that is simply illegal. But Charlie's answer to that is that he's had that arrangement for the past four years, and he just wants to continue that way. So he's sitting out while the two argue it. But it was reported this week that the Los Angeles Kings, who seem to be desperate for some kind of big league goaltending, have approached Bud Poyle, the Canucks general manager, and asked if Charlie's available. Poyle said, sure, Charlie's available. He'd love to trade him to Los Angeles. Problem is, Charlie likes it in Vancouver, and he doesn't want to leave to play in any American city. So a deal to the Kings right now looks pretty unlikely, unless Larry Regan can sweet-talk the veteran netminder into moving to Southern California. Charlie's, remember, played for the Seals in the northern part of the state, and he was happy to get out of there. I doubt something like this can be arranged. The National Hockey League officiating staff lost some personnel this week with a couple of resignations. Uh, I wondered if this was a sign of unrest in the ranks of, of the Zebras in the NHL. If they don't like the way Scotty Morrison and Clarence Campbell are uh, running things, or there's something else going on here. The two who left the first one was veteran linesman George Ashley. He's from Guelph, and he's going to join the Ontario Hockey Association staff as both a linesman and a referee. He takes a bit of a step up by becoming uh, a full-fledged referee in the OHA. Earlier, uh, uh, referee Ken Bodendistel, he's also from Guelph, 
he resigned and now he has gone back to the OHA as well. I saw some of his work, uh, and sorry, Ken, I, I, I hate to point out anything here, but I, I could see why he was better suited to the OHA than the NHL. I like to keep track of some of the former players for Canada's national team that we had for a few years before we finally left the international ice hockey wars. Terry Caffrey was a fine center on that team. Well, Terry has cleared waivers and was sent by the Minnesota North Stars to American Hockey League Cleveland Barons. Now, what happened was the North Stars uh, told Terry he hadn't made the team. He was being assigned to Cleveland. So Terry had the right, because of his contract status, to refuse the report and request to go on waivers, which... He did. He exercised that right, hoping that another NHL team would claim him and he'd be able to stay in the show. Problem was, nobody claimed Terry, probably because they didn't want to piss off the North Stars. Basically, that was it. And he's agreed now that he's going to play in Cleveland. You know, even the Canadians make mistakes sometimes, not checking things out completely. We had a... a, a a press release that said the Canadians traded a 1972 second round draft choice to the St. Louis Blues for right winger Craig Cameron. But uh, don't get too excited. This wasn't the Canadians squandering draft picks. The pick being sent to St. Louis was the one the Blues originally gave to the Canadians last year when they acquired Fran Huck. So basically St. Louis is getting their draft pick back and Craig Cameron was going to Canadians. But Craig Cameron didn't last long in Montreal. In fact, he didn't even make it to Montreal. Somehow, and no one on any of the stories read, adequately explained how it happened. But here's what was going on. This week, Cameron was put on waivers by the Blues. And then for some reason, the Blues figured after they put him on waivers that they were better off by getting a draft pick rather than just 30 grand waiver price someone would probably claim him so they approached the Habs said what about getting our draft pick back for Craig Cameron he'll look good in the Halifax Voyageurs Habs said great we'll take him and uh, you can have the draft pick one small monkey wrench was thrown into the machinery though the Minnesota North Stars put in a claim for Craig Cameron that put the deal for Montreal off, who was a little upset because they thought the Blues had gone ahead and gotten waivers. Now, the Canadians get the waiver wire just like everybody else, and they would have seen that it was less than three days. That's the waiver uh, time period at this time that Craig was on waivers. So what happened was he had to be, uh, the trade was rescinded. The draft pick went back to Montreal. Geez, another draft pick to Montreal. Craig Cameron stays with the Blues till the end of the waiver period and then happily joins the North Stars so he could stay in the NHL. North Stars got some bad news as well. We told you Dennis Hextall was his old nasty self this week. Well, maybe a little too nasty, I don't know. But his aching knees became such a problem that team doctors ordered that he undergo surgery uh, to have uh, some cartilage repaired and now he's out for about six weeks. Because the calendar was rolling around to October this week, it was prediction time for a lot of National Hockey League writers, and we're going to give you a few of their basic predictions here. Uh, our Patreon folks are going to get detailed prediction on each team in an upcoming episode this week as well, but we'll give you some now. Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times has the uh, finishes this way in the East. He has Montreal winning first place, followed by Boston, New York, Toronto, Vancouver, Detroit, and he's got the Buffalo Sabres on the bottom. In the West, Chicago Blackhawks, no question for Gerald there. You're going to see just about every uh uh, predictions going to have Chicago first. Why not? Minnesota will come in second with Philadelphia and St. Louis rounding out the playoff teams and Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, and of course the Seals on the bottom. The Globe and Mail's two predictors were uh, Toronto Globe and Mail, that is Dick Beddoes and Dan Proudfoot. 
Beddoes has Montreal first in the East, just ahead of Boston, with the Rangers and Toronto making the playoffs. He has Buffalo coming in fifth, Vancouver sixth, and Detroit seventh. Uh, Buffalo up in fifth, probably because Dick has a very soft spot in his heart for one Mr. Punch Himlack. In the West, Beddoes has Chicago just ahead of Pittsburgh, with Minnesota third, St. Louis fourth, and then the Flyers, the Kings, and the Seals. Beddoes doesn't have much faith in the Flyers' new coach, Fred Shiro. Dan Proudfoot has the Bruins winning the East ahead of the Rangers and the Montreal back in third, the Leafs in fourth, and then it's Detroit coming in fifth, Buffalo sixth, and Vancouver bringing up the rear. In the West, Chicago, Minnesota, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, the Kings, and the Seals, California, again on the bottom. And our final predictor this week is a fine hockey writer of the Minneapolis Tribune, Dwayne Netlin. And in the East, he's got Boston winning with Montreal second, New York third, and Toronto fourth. He has the Sabres uh, just missing the playoffs in fifth, Detroit behind them, and Vancouver on the bottom. And his Western division, well, of course, Chicago, and then Minnesota, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, the Kings, and the Seals. Interesting question asked this week by Francis Rose of the Boston Globe. And I thought I'd bring you Francis' story here. It's pretty, uh, a pretty good question. Uh, somebody was asking Rosa in a kind of a scrum they were having, uh, what could Phil Esposito do for an encore this year after scoring 76 goals last season? And somebody said, geez, do you think he can score 100 goals? And then the conversation turned to, can anyone in the National Hockey League ever score 100 goals? Well, Rosa decided to ask a few people about this, and here's some of the answers he got. General Manager Milt Schmidt of the Bruins said, absolutely not, nobody could do it. Johnny Busick of the Bruins said, it would be pretty tough. And Eddie Johnson, the Bruins veteran goalkeeper, said, it'll never happen. But guess who said it could happen? a fellow by the name of Bobby Orr. And Phil Esposito himself says, I don't know, maybe someone will come along and do it. A player like Evan Cornwaye has all the qualifications. So, of course, Rose asks, well, what about you, Phil Esposito? Hockey's first 76 goals scorer just shrugged and said, I don't think about it. But 100 goals by one man, it actually just blows your mind just to imagine it. But Bobby Orr doesn't think it's impossible. Bobby says, look at Phil. He had 76 goals last year, so another 24, and he'd have 100. Think of the goalposts he hit last year. Orr says a man would have to score at a rate of four goals every three games or something like that. And Bobby thinks that it actually could happen. The guy, of course, would need a ton of ice time, no injuries, and a whole lot of luck, but Orr thinks it's possible. Eddie Johnson said that a man would have to have a combination, uh, be a combination of Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito, and he'd have to have Bobby Hull's shot. And Orr's shot was not that far off Bobby's, actually. Uh, Johnson said, I don't see how it could happen unless there were another wholesale expansion, say, Four more teams. Well, EJ, stay tuned because there's going to be more than four teams in a few years. And a kid named Gretzky's about 10 years away and he will come close. Johnson went on to say, remember when expansion came in, we had six new teams and sure there had to be a gap. Now as the gap gets smaller, it'll get harder and harder to score 50, 60 or 70 70 goals. Uh, EJ said that he knew Phil needed just another 24 and he thought he hit post 10 to 12 times but he couldn't conceive of any one guy getting 100 goals. Esposito estimates that he hit the posts 11 times last season but he said and Phil was being brutally honest and Phil Esposito was nothing if not brutally honest, he said the fluky goals I got sort of evened all that out. Phil said all records get broken eventually, and that's what makes sports such a great world. It's what makes it exciting. A Roger Maris hits 61 homers, and the next season, the pressure gets to him. If I should score 50 goals this season, people are probably going to say that I had a bad year, 
uh, that I was in a slump all year. Don't you think someday someone might hit a home runs in a season? Sure, it's like Wilt Chamberlain scoring 100 points in a game. And how many times has that been done since way back when Wilt did it in, what, 1962? Espo went on to talk about this 100-goal scorer. Uh, He said that for a hockey player to score 100 goals, he'd need a team like the Bruins. They'd need a guy like Orr, wings like Cashman and Hodge, lots of ice time, no injuries, and he would have to have a big shot like Bobby Hulse. Phil said, I don't have that kind of shot, and I got 76. Imagine if a guy had Hull shot along with the guy surrounding him like I do. Phil said that the player would need to be an accurate shooter, an extreme opportunist, and he'd need a lot of luck. It wasn't long ago that we thought 100 points was a dream, said Orr, and 100 assists? Well, Bobby Orr last season had 102 assists. One year, I set an assist record, and the next year, Bobby breaks it, said Phil. And then the following year, he breaks it again, and he gets over 100. Johnson, the goalie, says assists are not the same as goals. It's easier to get 100 assists naturally when you're on the power play. You can pick up so many points. This must have been a wonderful conversation to be a witness to, because Phil Esposito then replied, look... 50 goals used to be the magic figure when Bobby Hull got 58 in 68-69. Everybody figured nobody could ever get 60. And then that wasn't impossible after all, and it went up to 70 and 75. And Esposito puts it at 76. That's the way things go, said Esposito. Esposito's attitude as the hockey season approaches is exactly right. What happened last season is in the past. He said, I'll go out, I'll play hockey. This is a new season. The goals he figures will take care of himself and he won't even dream about scoring 100 goals. Thanks to Francis Rosa of the Boston Globe for that fine look at a question that will finally maybe get answered, maybe not. It'll take a long time to score 100, if ever. Our final story this week, well, those of you old enough to remember Rudy Pellis, uh, he was the guy who led the Chicago Blackhawks to their first Stanley Cup in many, many years in 1961. Really quite a character. Well, 50 years ago this week, he was interviewed by Terry Jones, a young sports writer with the Edmonton Journal, and Terry is still around. I know every once in a while I've gotten comments on my Twitter feed from Terry. Uh, Loved reading his stuff. Love uh, his Twitter comments when we see them. He interviewed Rudy 50 years ago this week. And uh, this is Rudy's uh, interview with him, word for word, at least least as much as possible in a family publication. Thanks uh, for Terry to leaving out the expletives, which we had to delete. Terry writes, Rudy Pillis has been there. And back, the furry-browed character who once coached the Chicago Blackhawks to a Stanley Cup and is now the coach of the Brandon Wheat Kings of the Western Canada Hockey League. Things change around Rudy Pillis, but he remains the same. He still has that very unique sense of humor. That's putting it kindly. He loses something in the translation, however. If you've ever heard Rudy speak live, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, interesting to say the least. The way Pillis punctuates his already colorful conversation with words about the same length as his first name is really something of an art to be appreciated. Not the kind of guy you invite to his ladies' aid meeting. Pillis generally treats the world as one big hockey dressing room. He may not be the toast of the Boy Scout circuit, but the man is more than comfortable at something like Thursday's Oil King face-off breakfast, which was 7.30 at a.m. at the McDonald Hotel, where he's going to follow Bill Hunter's first public speech on the New World Hockey Association, and we had excerpts from that in a Patreon episode. Immediately likable, Pillis is still the most quotable uh, hockey guy even after censorship. An interview with him is simply a matter of saying go and then stop at the end. So Terry says go and go Rudy does. 
Rudy Stars. Did you know I was once a prospect in the New York Rangers? Played for the New York Rovers, but when the coach told me I, I could make the NHL if he could put my head on someone else's legs, well, I left the Rovers to play senior hockey in St. Catharines. I then established a junior team there called the Falcons. The Falcons, by the way, are still in existence today in the Greater Ontario Junior League. Rudy continued, soon I found myself working for the Buffalo organization, that would be the Bisons. They had me running a nice show at one point. My first scouting job was right here in this censored town. It was the spring of 1947 and there was a bond spiel here curling bond spiel. I remember because there were no rooms available in the hotels because of the damn curlers and I ended up going to the home of some Scottish family for the night. The reason I remember that was because they had a party that night, a going away party. The third one for the same guy. The parties were so good he kept missing his transportation out of town. Rudy says he joined the party and sent a telegram back that there were a lot of players here, but that they all had rooms. With that, Rudy says, I went to Lethbridge and discovered my first hockey player. Then I went and coached the Houston Huskies to a United States title. Buffalo's San Diego team was then in trouble, so I sent there and took the club from last place to the playoffs. Then the St. Catharines team, now the Teepees, were in trouble and I stayed there for 10 years and won a Memorial Cup. By 1957, I owned the Teepees and won another Memorial Cup as the owner. Both were against the Edmonton Oil Kings, I should point out. Remember, this, ed- this interview is taking place in Edmonton. Rudy continues, barely taking a breath. It was Christmas 11 years ago, this is 1971, when I got the call, I joined the Chicago Blackhawks as coach. On January 2nd, 1958, I was with them for five and a half years. In 1961, we won the Stanley Cup, and we would have won it again if I'd stayed around, but they won't win it again now for another 10 years. Now, why did I get fired from the Hawks? How do I know? I just got a letter saying they were going to change horses, and I'd been around hockey long enough to know that that's part of the game. So, I went to Denver, and we won a pennant there by 18 points. That was the Western Hockey League. Then the next year, they moved the team to Victoria, but they didn't send me any players. That was the Maple Leafs. We made the playoffs there anyway. From there, I went to the Hamilton Red Wings, and with expansion, I found myself in Oakland, where I had that personality conflict with owner Barry Van Gerbig. That ended in a lawsuit that has been resolved. Resolved, by the way, with uh, Rudy getting 105 grand for unpaid wages. Uh, nice, nice take in 19. 19- 70 back then. Actually, it ended, I think, in 68. I don't know how or why, but I'm getting my money from that from the Buffalo Sabres. That's one of those little side deals we never hear about, and Rudy let it slip. The part of the deal for the Sabres to come into expansion was that they would pay Rudy off, and that, from what I've been able to deduce, came from part of Seymour Knox, who owned the Sabres when they came in the NHL, as part of the ownership group of the Seals. A very convoluted thing. There's no paperwork anywhere, and we really couldn't find any of that out. Rudy continues, and of course, for the last three years, I've been in Denver, where we finished out of the playoffs twice. In 27 years, I've only missed playoffs three times, and I knew I'd miss them when I went to Denver. Junior hockey, I love every minute of it, but it drives me crazy because with these kids, you have to go back to the ABCs. The Stanley Cup was not my most memorable experience. It was that Memorial Cup in 1954. That was the year Edmonton had Normie Ullman and all those other guys. At that point, Terry, probably with his head spinning, shouted stop and Rudy stopped. For the most part, Rudy touched on the facts. Uh, When he speaks at this uh, breakfast on Thursday, there'll be a lot more people present and the facts may be played a little fast and loose at that time. So that's this week's show, everyone. And what did we learn as September came to a close? 
Well, we did have a few things that uh, we found out. Uh, there was a mess going on be- in that trade between the Blackhawks and the Seals. No closer to any resolution, but it sounds to me like the rookie general manager uh, was seen as a soft touch by the Blackhawks, and they hornswoggled the kid who failed to do his due diligence on the most important piece in the trade. Uh, we had some predictions. Uh, looks like, according to the writers that we profiled in this show, that the Chicago Blackhawks are again going to run away with the Western Division, but opinions are split between whether the Blackhawks or the Canadians will finish first. I thought some people might pick the Rangers, but they're solidly entrenched in third, according to the writers. And we tried to get an answer to the question, if any NHL player will ever score 100 goals in a season, and actually, uh, at this point, Phil Esposito wasn't sure. Some guys absolutely not. But Bobby Orr thinks it could be done. So here are some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. Training camps are going to be wrapping up next week. And we'll probably have a lot of the final cuts that teams are making as they get down to the NHL roster limits. We have news of a brand new hockey helmet called the Best Helmet in Hockey will be available to hockey players everywhere for the low, low price of $5. And the first thing you think of there is, what do you get for $5, even back in 1971? And that new World Hockey Association thing was making a bit of news, Uh, the Patreon Uh, reports will be very very detailed but we will have the main points that are coming out including a troubling report from the Phoenix uh, actually the Arizona Republic in Phoenix where their fine hockey reporter Frank Gianelli is going to talk about how worried the Western Hockey League is about the advent of the WHA and we're going to have much much more next week. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. He does a wonderful job. We can't thank him enough for all his hard work. He is a true media professional. And if you're looking to put a podcast together, get a hold of me and I'll put you in touch with Andy. The Rural Alberta Danny J. Toronto Indie Rock Group that has been nominated for a Juno provides our intro and exit music and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live they put on a great high energy show there's talk they may be doing shows in Edmonton this fall we haven't got any confirmation yet but hopefully they are going to be back on stage very soon they are working on new music for new albums other musical pieces and sound effects in the show are created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter every day at at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook on the the 50 Years Ago on Hockey banner. Our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. This podcast is available wherever you download your podcast, but the best place to get it is on the Hockey Podcast Network. Don't forget our Patreon account. And thanks again to everyone who tunes in. This 1971-72 season is really going to be something very interesting with events that are going to shape the future of hockey for decades to come. And we're going to be with you all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice-